Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexander Curland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. So you are ready to go. Yeah, Um, guess what? What? I bought the book this morning. Oh, doesn't that say something? I mean, you've sent me the electronic version months ago. I read this book cover to cover. I read the whole thing already. And this morning I bought the book. (laughs) Isn't that, I mean, I think that's a statement in and of itself because... You know, I said in a previous episode, I thought the book was like the new Bible of horse training. Well, that's what you do with the Bible, right? You keep going back. (laughs) You keep it close to your bedside and you keep going back to the book to read it. And so I I bought it on Amazon. And, you know, the other thing that amazed me is because I'm about an hour and a half in a little village away from Montreal. And in the good old days, you know, I would have ordered this and it would have taken two weeks before I get it. Right. But now I'm getting it on Friday, which is two days from now. I know. It's amazing. And I'm getting, it's not the electronic copy I'm getting. I'm getting the print copy in 48 hours. How does that work? I don't know. I mean, whether you're in Singapore, Montreal, or in my little village, you get the book right away. Yeah. I I am astounded, absolutely astounded at the changes in the publishing and printing industry. And yeah, we because do you, a- you mentioned something the other day that intrigued me. You mentioned something about print on demand. That's how it works now? This is is modern publishing. So it used to be what I'm accustomed to is what has been the norm in publishing forever, which is you have a book that you are publishing and you go to a printer. So the printer maintains the actual physical presses on which the book is printed. But the presses have to be set up for the title that you're printing and there's a setup fee for it so you can't I mean you could print two or three or four copies or a hundred copies but you would have still have a monumental setup fee which can run into the thousands of dollars so when you do a print run you don't do small print runs you Mm -hmm. do large print runs Mm -hmm. and that's in part why the publishing houses one of the reasons they have to be careful about what books they publish because they can't afford to print 500 copies because they have to cover the setup fees and they have to maintain these larger inventories. And that's the model that I've always known. Amazon and these other, and Amazon's not the only one that does print on demand, but print on demand now means that everything is done digitally, that they're not setting up the presses individually for each title that when you order the book through Amazon a magic wand is waved and, is and the book is printed then and, and the there book is printed then and there so it's printed it's, when I order bound. it yes and it's bound 
And, you know, when I first started hearing about print on demand, I was so skeptical because, mm. first of all, I didn't know how they do that. I didn't know how they did it. <laughs> well, and they I sell thought, lots of books. And so. I thought they can't, you know, it can't be a, a quality book. It's got to be sort of a mimeographed. And the cost per book was really high initially. When I first looked at print on demand, the individual cost to me, to the publisher of the print on demand was really high. And so it didn't work for me to do the print on demand. But this time through, when I looked at it, it's like, they've got it all worked out. I mean, the world that we live in right now, Dominique, is absolutely astounding. And so instead of having somebody from Australia order the book from me and having me mail a print copy of the book and paying the shipping fee for the international postage, which to Australia is going to run, and I paid it the other day, I think it was $53. Oh, the book is less than that. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, it was a hardcover, but but still... I mean, that's just, that's that's a deal breaker. I mean, I would be thinking twice, three times, four times before I ordered a book with that kind of shipping, shipping charge. Yeah. And yet, you know, it's, it, I'm not the one setting the shipping charge. That's the amount that I had to hand over at the post office. So it's just an absolute game changer that we can now send this book around the planet without having those extra hurdles. And in 48 hours. And mm-hmm. you know, if I were in Montreal, I probably would have gotten it to, tomorrow mm-hmm. in 24 hours. But yeah. because I'm a little bit out in yeah. the country, it's 48 hours, which I think is a pretty reasonable way. No, and I just, I would love to see at some point a documentary or something where they take you inside the Amazon printing world to see physically how all of this is achieved. When you think of the thousands of titles that are sold every day via Amazon, and so many of those titles are going through this print-on-demand process. But it is going to absolutely turn the publishing industry inside out and upside down. And so there's always uh, the pros and cons of these innovations. You know, yeah, the, the barrier to enter is much smaller than it yeah. was before. Yeah, is, so more people is, are going in. What is this going to do mm-hmm. to the traditional publishing houses? Is this a good thing? Is it not a good thing? And well, you know, it's it, really difficult to stop those things, right? right? I mean, what once the, how do you say in English, the tooth... The, the paste genie, is out yeah, of the, the genie's out of the bottle. Right. And, and we may not want to stop it because what it may mean is that we have access mm. to you know, all those books that sit in people's drawers and you know, tucked away in their closet, shoved into a shoebox under their bed kind of thing, because they couldn't get through the gauntlet of the traditional publishing houses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, when you hear the stories of how many publishing houses rejected J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books. Before- yeah, it's a very common story, actually. Yeah. You know, that they were refused 10 times before they finally yes. got published. Yes. Yeah. 
So it's actually almost deceiving when you don't have that story. You know, it's we're so used to it now yeah. that you wonder, oh, she got accepted right away. But yeah, today's is different, but it certainly because for it, us, the readers, yes, it's great. It it is still an enormous amount of work to produce a I guess I, I want to say to produce a quality book, to produce something that is worth reading, that has gone through an editing process where you've given some thought to the basic book design, et cetera, et cetera, where you've spent the time to put the words down on, I want to say on paper, but nobody uses paper anymore to put to write manuscripts. But it is an enormous, enormous amount of work that hurdle will still exist, that producing a book is a huge project. Mm. And I think making it easier for people to produce good books is a good thing in the long mm -hmm. run. You know, is Amazon in the long run a good thing? We won't know for quite a while. It certainly has meant that it's much harder for local businesses, you know, mom and pop shops and all the rest of that, when you mm -hmm. can go online and buy whatever, instead of running down to your, uh, you know, local stores to buy whatever it is that you're going online to shop. There is that still, downside. It's still fun to go in a small library. I do both. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, you know, I knew this is a specialty book. It, I won't find it in my little library here. They actually can, somebody can presumably go into their local bookstore okay. and say, could you get this book for me? And they can, they can go into yeah, their, their booksellers, you know, wherever they get their books and add it to their order of books okay. that they want to, to stock. That is doable. So and if, you know, and if somebody really wants to avoid Amazon, and I know yeah. there are people who do, that yeah. that's an option. That there are other options. You can get it through Barnes and Noble and other booksellers like that, and mm -hmm. and you can ask your local bookstore to get it for you. So there are options. But so, you're getting you're getting a print yeah, copy. So I wanted to let you know that I yeah, bought the that's book. Very neat. But you know, it's because. I want to, I know I'll be wanting to go back and back all the time, all the practical step-by-step -step exercises. I mean, there's enough there for a few years for me <laughs> to play with. And, you know, when, although I did read it already from cover to cover, there's certain books that I want, most of the books I buy, I don't want to have them on my shelf because I don't have a lot of shelf anymore for books. And, you know, I've given a lot of my books, but there are certain books that you want to go back to that I prefer to have on my shelf because you just see the title, you grab the book, you open it up. And in this case, the table of content is so well detailed or do you say detailed? Detailed. detailed <laughs> that you can really find what you need yeah. quickly yeah. because there's a lot of info in the table of content. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm the looking... table of contents is, I think, what, 10 pages long? And I, yeah. and I really, 
And I went back and forth on that. Do it's I a do? big strength of the book, I think, Alex. I, 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 I really like it. Yeah. I either had to do that or an index. And I've done in, an index before. Mm, and yeah. they are, they talk about an enormous amount of work. Yeah. So I thought that was a, a, a good alternative. But it was mm. a challenge, you know, going back and forth in terms of when somebody is looking at, say, they're on Amazon and they do the look inside the book. And, uh, yeah, and they so they'll have that in at pages first. of the contents. It's like, yeah. when do I get to the book? So, you know, do, would I have been better off doing like a... No. Just a, yeah. Well, well yeah. though I shouldn't have said no to, well, so just soon. The, just the chapter titles without all of the subheadings. No. And we're both, we both came to the same conclusion. No, no, I really like this. I think it's very helpful. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to get the print copy because I thought, oh, I'm going to find, whenever I want something, I'm going to find it really easily. And you know, with the electronic copy, you just, you can do a search. But I still wanted it in paper. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So maybe... We can, I hope our listeners won't feel we're plugging this book too much, but I, but I it's not, of, you know, it's not every day that, that I know it's not. a new book. And, so, and I mean, it so is get to indulge. And, yeah. And it's a few hundred pages book. And yeah. anyway, you know, it's this, it's the topics we like to talk about. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So the last time we went all the way to the end of the book, to the yes. writing part, and I love that, but I want to come back to the beginning of the book. I want to come back to the first part where you really establish all the principles. And the reason why I want to go back there and talk about that a little bit is is because, you know, I feel this, this book, the reason, one of the reasons why people who have already read a lot of books should get it is because it's up to date. I've said that already, but I'm going to explain what exactly I feel is in this book that was not in the books that I read anyway 15 years ago. And for the people who are beginning, I mean, they're lucky because, you know, this is where they're starting now. And some of the stuff I read here, I wish I had known 15 years ago because I would have made less mistakes with my animals. And it's not that these these things are completely new. Right. These things have evolved from what we read or were talking about 15, 20 years ago. It's it's not new, but it's up to date. It's, right. it's explained in a way that goes deeper, farther, that has benefited from, I suppose, all the errors we made. And we asked ourselves, why is this not working? Seems, you know, sensible. But there were part, it's never so simple, right? It's right. complex. And in the book, you you there's an you image. Know, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in really quickly with just one quick comment. Is I because I have not pulled any of the older resources. I haven't looked at them and said, oh well, that's just out of date. I, I don't want that out there anymore. I've kept them all. And part of the reason that I like having them in addition to there's good information and good examples in all of them, I'm thinking of the DVDs in particular, but there's a certain, I don't want to say naivete, but there is the innocence of 
we were just in the beginning of exploring clicker training and figuring out how to use it and what it was and and what you could do with it and all of those things. And to read the first book, Clicker Training for Your Horse, or, and to watch the very first DVD lessons, you get to see what clicker, where what clicker training was like in that early stage where we were going, my horse touched a cone that's just extraordinary. Mm. And that kind of excitement that I think sometimes we, it's not that we forget about it, but we take it more for granted. granted. Yeah. Know, yes, mm. the horse, horses can, can do all of these clever things. And in those early days, it was like, you mean you can teach a horse to, you know, pick anything? You can you can teach retrieve a dog toy. You can teach a horse to retrieve a dog toy. That's right. What an astounding, astounding <laughs> idea that is. And so there's a lot of fun. And I think sometimes, you know, we got to live through that phase, and we got well, to I think through all of that, too... those innovations. And so by keeping the books on the bookshelf and keeping those earlier lessons on the bookshelf, people get to go back in time, as it were, and experience that total delight of, my horse touched a target, that's just extraordinary. Well, I think we were marveling at how we were developing a new communication channel with our animals. Yes. And that was wonderful. But now we're refining the communication. Yes. So it's, I mean, I don't think I lost actually the marveling because there are times when, you know, it's funny because I guess that's why this example came to mind. I was playing with retrieving a dog toy with Woody and it's the kind of dog toy that when you squish it, it makes a little noise. It squeals, yes. Yeah, but it, it's a very soft noise, this one. And he, he actually likes, it's a, it's great because you know when to click, right? If this if that's where you're at in the training, you yes. know he's really mouthing it because it, it does this it little sound, yes. yeah. And, you know, I thought, it's so funny to look at him doing that noise with the toy, you know? It's still these little things that make me smile. I don't think we've lost the marveling at the no, communication we have not. channel. No, but I think it's, you know, it's one thing to open up the channel, but you can still get into frustration, you know, conversations if you're still you know, only using the letters and not doing words and sentences. So we're learning to write with our animals much more, I think. And I'm sure it's far from over. It'll still develop. And so, you know, some of the, so, I mean, the things I'm going to mention are, like I said, they're not new. We've talked about them on, on the podcast on many occasions, but I feel these are things that were not there in the books that I read, not explain these this way. And there are concepts that are developed throughout the book. So you really see all the application and implication of these concepts. And I find that three things really stand out for me overall, you know, that are really key to how I train today and are really well explained or illustrated in the book. 
The first one, of course, well, I should start, I suppose, with constructional training. I was going to start with loopy training, but I guess because of the title, let's, I'll start with the constructional approach. And it's, you know, we used to say that you needed to split. Yes. We would say that. So it's not like it's completely out of the blue that we're coming up with constructional approach. But I feel that there are nuances between saying to someone, well, you should split more, split, 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 and going through the constructional approach with the four questions and really focusing on the component skills, It's which can sometimes be something that looks completely different from yes. what you're training. Whereas when I read those books, earlier books, yeah, I would try to split, you know, between one and two, there's 1.5 and there's 1.25, but I would kind of stay in the same kind of behavior. You know, I would, I wouldn't go away in a completely different context to train something. I would try to split it then and there in that context. And I wouldn't break it down to skills. I would try to break down the behavior in steps, not so much in skills. There's a difference for me, you know, that. I think the constructional training language is going to be very helpful. It is not that we are doing something different or that this was not, has not always been part of the work. Mm -hmm. When I think about the foundation lessons and they are the Lego blocks that you use in so many different contexts in so many different ways. Or when we're shaping, for example, the grownups are talking and I have you fold your hands together in front of your body and then unfold as you feed. And that that, gesture of folding and unfolding is going to be used in the rope handling, but you already have it as a component skill because of the way things have been set up. But I think what the constructional training language does is it really drives this point home, which is what you are experiencing, what you are feeling. So, and I think that's really been conceptually one of the big changes for me that, that made the book worth writing. So starting out way back when at the beginning of clicker training, for me, the beginning for me of clicker training. Which is um, more than, because for me, it's 10, 15. For you, right. it's 20, 30, maybe. Right. Well, so it was 1993 I stumbled across well, how much clicker that? training. That's 30 years. That's 30 years. Yeah. And, and I was already teaching and I was already training and getting good results and then across my radar comes clicker training and I started to explore the clicker training and what I recognized was that it became the umbrella under which everything else fit so I always had this image of this very large umbrella and under it were all these different shaping strategies so we had mm -hmm. the free shaping and we had targeting and we had shaping on a point of contact the, the use of 
tactile cues, the use of pressure and release of pressure. And we went through the years of back and forth discussions within the clicker training community and certainly the, the, the late night conversations at the clicker expo of it, the, does pressure and release of pressure really belong under the clicker training umbrella? And I would say, and I've always said, that it's not whether you use these tactile cues that are pressure-based cues, and the nature of them is, you know, you're, there is contact, your hand is on your horse's shoulder, your, your hand is on the lead, and then it's not. So it is making contact, it's removing the contact. It's pressure and release of pressure. It's not whether you're using tactile cues that matters, it's how they were taught. So if mm. they were taught with escalating pressure, with an underlying threat, mm. then you are in a command-based paradigm. And in the first part of the book, I talk about the cues versus commands and the, these, the two very different paradigms that emerge from, is, is there an underlying threat or is it, taught with positive reinforcement. So this becomes a cue. It is an invitation. It is a well-understood signal where this pressure and release of pressure cue simply, not simply, but serves to help the learner get to his reinforcement faster. I'm playing the game of hot and cold and I'm providing lots of clues for my learner so that it becomes easier and easier and easier for my learner to get to the right answer and to get to the right answer quickly. And so pressure and release of pressure always had a place under the clicker training umbrella. And so this, the, the clicker training umbrella was very large. So I have a huge variety of teaching strategies that I can call on when I'm working with an individual, because it's always a study of one. And one of the principles is there's always, always, always more than one way to teach every behavior. And that's a good thing. So all of that was, was there. And the breaking of training down into smaller steps, into <clears throat> component elements was very much part of the teaching, but, it was actually it also part of any good trainers. Yes, tra absolutely. Even negative reinforcement absolutely. trainers that are good are people right. who know how to split yep. or divide into yep. component scales and know not to ask too much too soon. Yep. What the constructional training does, that, that language that we borrow from Dr. Gold Diamond, and those four questions that he states, which are so clear, you know, what are your goals? What is it that you dream of? And then where are you now? So what is in repertoire? Which is very important question. A very important question. Yeah. And then what are the... How are you going to teach it? How are you going to teach it? How are you going to get from where you are to where you want to be? And then the fourth one is what's going to keep you motivated? And what that does is is it puts a framework over the clicker training umbrella. So the, the image that I have is, is, is that of like a, a pavilion, a big tent. And this tent is held up 
by four supporting posts. And each of those posts is one of those questions. And underneath that supporting tent is the clicker training umbrella. And so we have to look at the constructional training first. And we have to look at those four questions and really understand that what this training is about is breaking complex behavior down into smaller component pieces and teaching those. And sometimes those component pieces will not seem as though they are related at all mm. to what you are trying to teach, what mm. you just said. You're teaching a horse to touch a target, but you want to ride. What mm. is this nonsense? Mm. You know, mm. why am I why am I doing this? Well, because this this is a component that mm. is going to help you to teach all these other things that are going to get you closer and closer and closer to your goal. And instead of jumping in at the level of your goal and encountering all kinds of problems because your horse, you and your horse, do not have the necessary repertoire to be successful, we're going to go figure out what are those skills that, that are needed and then how do you teach them? And for each skill that you identify, for each lesson that you identify, you're going to look at that as well and say, well, what are the skills? What are the components that I need to have for that lesson to be successful? So you keep peeling it back and peeling it back until you get to that place of simplicity where you can ask for and get on a consistent basis. Behavior that you, you know, I'm thinking about when <clears throat> you're teaching people to the horse to target and then asking people to deliver the treat while after the horse is backed up, you know, in, in a way that makes the horse that invites the horse to back up a step yes. or two. And then the next lesson could be. I'm going to now teach my horse to back up, but it's already there. It's already there. So already when you ask the question, one of the four, the four questions, what is already there? Well, you haven't really taught backing, but yeah, you have, because when you were delivering the food, you know, and your body language when you were delivering the food was you were turning into facing almost now your your horse and extending your arm towards his chest so that he would take a step or two. He's already backing and there's already almost half the cue in there. Yeah. yeah. So it's always like that. Everything is like that. And you see that progression throughout the book, you know, yes. it's like, okay, I started just teaching my horse to target, but no, I've actually started teaching him to back up. And I, I'm starting to have some of the component skills to have him back up. Now I can start to expand it. You know, I can, I can add a little bit more of a cue maybe to it if I want to with the lead or with my fingers very lightly, or I can expand the number of steps he's going, blah, 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 et cetera. But it just started 
with actually targeting, which has nothing to do with backing, right? It's so it's so wonderfully sneaky. I know you keep also... saying that in the yes. book. Yes. I, you know, I should do I should do a search and see how many times sneaky comes up so, in your book. I'm sure I would bet you more than it's most. over. Oh, it's over a hundred. I'm pretty sure. I'll tell you next time how many okay. times sneaky comes up in your book. But I'm I, it's pretty a, positive it's over a hundred. It's an idea that I really it just tickles my fancy. Mm. That there you are. In your say you're you're giving a horse his very first clicker training lesson and you're following the instructions, you're using the setup that I enjoy, which is because I you know I have a barn with stalls and I have a stall guard across the door, so the horse is in the stall with that a simple stall stall guard across the door. And so we have protective contact and I hold the target up and and the horse comes over and he, sniffs at the target because he's curious. I click, I feed, I'm following the loopy training protocols so that at first I'm feeding approximately where I was holding the target. But then gradually as that loop becomes clean, I'm going to start to change. I'm only going to change one element at a time. So I'm not going to start moving the target around and changing the food delivery both at the same time. Instead, I'm going to choose to change something about the food delivery because I would like the food delivery to become very dynamic. Down the road, it's very useful if my horse understands the food delivery may change. Sometimes I'll be asking him to come forward. Sometimes I'll be asking him to back up. Sometimes I'll be asking him to turn to the side, left or right. Sometimes I'll be asking him to lower his head. Sometimes I'll be asking him to stand still with his head level with his chest, all of these, all of that is really useful. But in order for it to be effective, I have to go through a teaching process. So I'm not suddenly holding the, the treat out three feet in front of my horse going, I just clicked, here's the treat. And my horse is looking totally lost, like what's going on here, because he doesn't understand the food delivery. So I'm going to start by, I hold the target up, my horse orients to the target, I click, and I begin to feed so that I am extending my arm out towards the horse and I'm turning towards the horse. So there's this rotation of my body. It's like a door open, door closed. So in this case, I'm closing the front door by rotating in my body. And, I'm, and what I'm imagining is that there is a food bucket where the horse is standing. So about where his shoulder is, the point of his inside shoulder. I'm imagining there's a food bucket there. And in order for me to drop treats into that food bucket, my horse is going to need to shift out of my way. Now I may need to take several small approximations for my horse to figure out that, oh yes, if I just take a step back, it's so easy, I, you know, I, I can get the food. So there's a a process of teaching this to the horse. I don't just suddenly turn, extend my arm out and shove really? into my horse. Right. But over time, over a few repetitions, what will happen is that as I click and I rotate through my body and I extend my arm out away from my body because I want to feed out away from my body so I'm not 
drawing the horse into me where I will be increasing mugging, my horse is going to start to back up. Yeah. And then I can change the orientation of my body again. So it's door, I just close the front door. Now I'm going to open the front door. As I hold the target up, my horse comes forward, touches the target. I click, I take the target down, I reach into my pocket. Then I rotate in my body, I extend my hand out. What I have just taught, and my, my horse has never left the stall. We are in a stall with protective contact. I have just taught the basic body language, the cues for me as a handler and my horse's response to those cues for basic leading, for lunging, for liberty work, and extending that down the road for riding. I mean, basically everything that we're going to be doing on the ground with, you know, in terms of performance work, I've just set the stage for it. Mm-hmm. And we've never taken the horse out of the stall. Mm-hmm. I just find that to be an incredible idea. And then if I'm really paying attention, so I'm looking not just at what my horse is doing, but I'm really paying attention to what I'm doing as well, so that I am, if I'm on the left side of the horse, I'm feeding with my left hand. If I'm on the right side of my horse, I'm feeding with my right hand so that I get that door open, door closed. And I'm learning to move my feet as needed so that I am not leaning, collapsing through my rib cage to when I feed the horse, but I'm keeping shoulders over hips over feet so that when I feed, I am in good balance. I am shoulders over hips over feet, which means that my horse is in a stall, we're in the barn, the saddle is in the tack room, the bridle is hanging in the tack room, and yet we're having a riding lesson. Mm. Now that I am building for myself that core habitual pattern where I'm constantly returning to neutral balance. So if I, if I find myself leaning, I'm returning to neutral balance, which is what I would want under saddle. So under saddle, I don't want the collapsing through the ribs, the, the shoulders getting left behind the hips or leaning out ahead of the hips, or I want shoulders over hips over feet. And that's what the groundwork prepares us for. So. I just love the sneakiness of it. Mm. And, and I think when we put the constructional training framework, when we put that pavilion up with its four corners, those four questions, that, and then put, build everything underneath that, that what I'm hoping is that this will really make clear this point that we are building complex behavior out of smaller, simpler component pieces so that basically you're only ever a small step away from the next step that you're working on. That Mm -hmm. I'm not asking people to jump into the middle and say, all right, today, you novice rider, we're going to work on shoulder in. Mm. What? What's that? Oh, don't worry about it. I'll just, 
I'll just bark out a series of commands. And if you get frustrated, I don't want to know about it. It sort of sounds like some of the lessons I've watched. You know, it's even in husbandry, I'm, you know, I'm thinking I've, I've taken this dog from not wanting at all to have his paw touched because he had some traditional nail clipping no. done to eagerly accepting to like a enrichment activity almost <laughs> to have their nail clipped or what's the verb for when you use a dremel sanded or I don't know yeah, the word dremel but you know what dremel Rest. yeah yes. but you know when I started with the dog I realized there were so many little things before I even started with the Dremel, you know, just the sound of the Dremel, but of course, just lying down. Could she lie down? Could yes. I kneel in front of her while yes. she was lying down? Was that a problem for her? Sometime, and, and there were things, she was an older dog. And so there were also a few physical issues. Like sometimes you, you've never done this to a dog because you're not a dog person, <laughs> but if they're lying down, like in a, let's say they're in a sphinx position, yep. sometimes it's it's difficult to, to to bring the Dremel because there's no not enough space between the floor and the nail. So, you know, I like for her to put her paw in my hand. So that's an exercise all by itself, so, putting paw yes. in hand. And there, may, and there may be some arthritic issues here of how long or how high I can bring her little paw up, you know. And yes. I realized that one of the two paws, I couldn't bring it as high as, as the other one. The other one wasn't a problem. She's always offering it. But this one, and sometimes it depends too on how she is actually lying down. So those are things I have to learn too. And we're not, we haven't even touched the Dremel yet. Right. I'm just checking her out. Can she lie down? Can she put her hand in my paw? How long can she do it? Right. Those are all little component skills that we worked on and had actually fun working on before. And then the sound of the Dremel. And of course I had, you know, you, you have to know what you're doing with a Dremel. So with the nail cutter, I did a lot of exercises with pasta oh. before I went to the dog, right? Because you suggest that all the time. You as a handler are is also part yes. of the skill yes. building, right? Yes. You, you have to yeah, you have to know what you're doing. Like when you're presenting the target, if you're presenting it all over the place and you're not really stable or you can't visualize where you're going to put no. the stable. That means, too, probably your food delivery is going to be all over the place with the neck of the horse too low, too high, too to the right, etc. So you have to, this is component part of the, yes. the, the whole thing, too. So, I mean, there are lots of little components that we can work on before you start actually doing the real behavior of, you know, making contact of, and then just touching the nails. Can I touch your nails with my fingers? No cutting, no nothing. Can I touch your nail with the Dremel when it's not? Or or the, the, the nail cutters. Can I put the nail cutter just next on your, on your nail? No. I'm not cutting yet. Can I put, can I start to close it a little bit with just a little bit of pressure? Well, is that okay? So 
I mean, when, when you start looking at it, the number of little steps you can put between the final behavior, and then you start putting behaviors together yes. to create more complex behavior. So, I mean, there's a lot. I think, too, I used to go in a training session without planning too much. Now I plan much more. Those four questions of the constructional approach, and they kind of force you to sit down and think about it a little bit. I mean, yeah. you can write them down or not, but you should at least go through you in your head through those questions. I think they're very, very useful yeah. to, to help when, you identify those components. And our animals always tell us what we need to work on next because someone listening to this might be thinking, oh, this just sounds like, such a huge amount of work. Why Actually, can't I no. just? <laughs> it yeah. goes very fast. Yes, it does. Yeah, you, it, you. It's like checkpoints, right? Can I do this? Can I do that? Oops, no, I can't do that. We're going to yeah. work on this a little bit. It can yeah. go pretty fast. It takes more time to explain, <laughs> to to yes. verbalize it than to actually do it. But it's true that maybe someone who would have looked at me would have thought, "What is she doing?" you know, touching the horse, the dog nails like that. And, but it now this dog would not even let you take her paw in your hand for two seconds. Now she's just staying there. You know, she, she wants it. She knows because it's, um, you know, the, uh, the ritual around it is pretty much always the same. So she knows this is going to happen. And she's already lying down on at the place where it's going to happen because yeah. she wants it. And when you think of least one of one of the things that makes this training, this approach to training, so efficient, is that many of the skills that you are teaching are going to be used for other behaviors. Yeah. So if you have the behavior that she will lie down, and where you can sit down next to her and she remains calm then think of all the medical situations that are suddenly made so much easier because she has that acceptance yeah. and you never know what's going to be in your future with any individual but you know if she came in with let's say porcupine quills because you live in part of the world where there are porcupines, you would already have in place the some of the components that would make it much easier for her to cooperate with you in what can be a very painful procedure in, in removing those porcupine quills. And, and I think too, one of the things the constructional approach has done is it has showed us, or, or it helps us see that Let's say, for instance, this dog, there are certain nails that I prefer to do when she's lying on her side, not as a sphinx. It's easier to reach for me. And I know she knows how to lie down on her side, right? She does it all by herself, just as our horses, they lift their feet. But right. the thing is, I want her to do it when I'm going to cut her nail, yes. which, which is a completely different behavior in a way than just lying down and relaxing. So you have to teach it again in the context of nail cutting. Yes. You know, and she might even lie down for other games, but lying down on my side for nail cutting, maybe not. No. 
That's when so that's I that's when I'm going to get up and leave. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yes. So she knows this behavior, but not in this context. Right. Because I was going to make a link to loopy training now. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I think that's one of the other concepts. Because there are three that I want to bring up. So constructional approach was one. And the second one is, is loopy training. It's made such a difference for me as a trainer, but I think the chapter on loopy training in the book is absolutely, it's it's really excellent. Oh, I, yeah, I really think that it will help people understand what it is. I love, love, love the funnel analogy. And do you want to explain that? The funnel analogy? White, the white funnel versus the, uh, the narrow, so flipping, flipping the funnel, you, flipping you the call funnel. it. Yeah. yeah, that's an image that I've used for a long time, actually, because I think it's a very clear one. And yeah, I know you had it in your blog, but I'll, I, I'll let you explain it. And I'll tell you what, for me, was an addition okay. in the chapter. Okay. But let's Good. start with explaining it with the funnel analogy. And we may have talked about this on the, the podcast before, the funnel, but I want to bring that extra little thing in after you've explained it. We'll leave flipping the funnel for next time. It's a metaphor I've used for a very long time. In this case, it's going to take us to an important discussion of the type of training strategy that you use when you begin your shaping. Do you start with the wide end or the narrow end of the funnel. I'm going to make you wait until next time to find out what that means. I hope you're intrigued by our discussion of the new book, Modern Horse Training, a constructional guide to becoming your horse's best friend. You can order the book from my website, theclickercenter.com, and you can also order it from Amazon and other booksellers. If you've been enjoying these Equosity podcasts, one way that you can thank us for them is by leaving a five-star review for the book on Amazon. Reviews really do make a difference. And I have to say, people have been leaving the most staggeringly wonderful reviews. I want to, again, thank everyone who has left a review. Your words have been so deeply appreciated. So thank you with all my heart for the wonderful, kind words that you have shared. So next time, we're going to be flipping funnels. That sounds as though we should be flipping pancakes, but that's not what that means. Until then, enjoy the book, train well, and have fun with your horses. Thank you.